Well, many of you I don't know. I might know your faces, but to come up with a name, oh my. I tell people this is not the only thing thin in this head. (laughs) Well, good evening. A verse of scripture came to my mind as we were um, singing here. The scripture that says, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit. I'm just going to say that if uh, we don't get it at this stage in life, when will we get it? You know, the church of Jesus Christ is going to go on. I believe the church of Jesus Christ, there'll be something left here when the Lord Jesus blows the trumpet and comes with the clouds. He says, will there be faith found in the earth when he comes? Nevertheless, he asks that question in the book of Luke, I believe chapter 18. But Paul says, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. So it tells me there's a good possibility there's going to be a church when the Lord Jesus comes back. It may look bleak and dark, and I was hoping you had the hymnaries, because there's a song in there I'd like to sing. Oh, where are kings and empires now? Of old that went and came. But yet, O Lord, the church is praying yet a thousand years the same. It's quite an invigorating song. And I was hoping we could sing it, but maybe some other time. What I wanted to say was the church is going to go on. I believe the church will go on, but whether you will be a part of it is going to be up to you. Whether I will be a faithful part of it is going to be up to me. It may include a lot of other factors and a lot of other people. But one of the maladies of people in some of our stage of life here is it's hard to see into the future and hard to see the things that you're doing today where they'll take you. And patterns that you're developing today and things that you're neglecting today, things that you're practicing today that it's worth anything or where it's going to take you if you neglect it. I've lived long enough to see several whys in the road. And when our children hear about some of my wife and I's history and some of the things, they say, my, I'm surprised at you. Well, it's finding my way. There are a lot of winds. There are a lot of tides. There are a lot of things pulling this way and that way. And we're thankful That the Lord didn't give up on us. And I'm thankful tonight that the Lord has preserved us this time from having departed from him. Now Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. Now if you just get the truth about Jesus, are you going to make it? If you don't have the way and the life, no. If you just have the life of Jesus, are you going to make it? Now, there we get a little more antsy. We're not real sure. 
See, there's been a lot of emphasis on the new birth, and we need a new birth. Without it, nobody's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's going to be saved. But just because you got converted and you found the life does not mean that you're going to remain on the way and be faithful to the end. There is a way that is revealed in the word of God that as you ponder the precepts and the things that are written here and the practices that are emphasized here, they will begin to form and mold your life. We'll just take the head covering for an instance. I'm, I'm not even got started on my notes yet. I'm sharing my heart. When you really begin to get into the word of God, what the word of God has to say about subjects such as modesty, the head covering, being separated from the world, being separated unto God, and you begin to study some of these subjects and apply them and say, what does that mean to me? Now you're beginning to find the way. And there's been various groups in the history of the church in the USA that have emphasized the way and the way and the way. And they have been very strong on the way. But they've missed some life. We need it all. I understand you had a discussion today about um, convictions. I say this. Carefully, and I, I, uh, I say this, I've trust under the authority of the brotherhood here, and I'm willing to be corrected. But I believe one of the reasons we don't have more convictions is the church is not specific enough in its application. Too great a diversity. We don't need to be a carbon cut, cut out of a cookie cutter. Not at all. But when we don't have an eye, if there's not an eye in your brotherhood to see things that are coming in that are part of the world, fashions and fads and things, and they start coming in the world, and they, I mean in the church, and they start pushing and become the Christian fad, it's tweaked a little different, but it's the same fad. That's worldliness. The, the scripture says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If he wants to be like the world, he's already an enemy of God. And so we're at square one there. We can't follow the world and the Lord. My burden tonight is why are we here? Why are we here? You might have expected an uh, evangelistic message tonight. But this was the message that I felt the Lord clearly laid on my heart. And I'd just like to share my burden tonight of how it seems we just want to get life into people. We want to get an, an experience. When Jesus calls us to be humble servants and godly people. The Lord Jesus calls us to follow him. To become disciples of the Lord Jesus. And he's making some pretty stout statements here. But I'm not going to get into those too much tonight. So why are we here? What would you say? <clears throat> Well, I've heard it said, and this is where some of my thinking has come from. I don't know what you would say if I said, why are we still here? And I got answers. There might be a multitude. There might be several different answers, and they might all be right. But an answer that I've heard repeatedly says to evangelize the world, to get the lost saved. That's the only reason we're here. 
Otherwise, the Lord would have blitzed us up into glory. Well, I think we'll have a few more answers. That is one of them, um, that we are here for an evangelization of the world. But there are some other reasons. And I'd like to reason with us this evening. Some would say now that we're saved, the only reason we're here is to evangelize the world. And we are here to evangelize the world. Maybe for an illustration, we could ask the couples here, why did you get married? Brother Wolf, why did you get married? Well, we won't put you on the spot. But would we all be surprised if he says, well, we just wanted as many children as we could have. That's the only reason we got married. You know, she was sort of nice. He's he's all right, but we wanted children. What would you think of a home like that? Isn't it important to you that they get fed? Well, yeah, they'll probably get fed somehow. You know, what if they're filthy? Uh, Well, you know, at least they're alive. We have children. These are eternal souls. And we're getting them to go to heaven. We'd all think that's pretty absurd. But sometimes we come to the church that way. And we say, if only we can get them saved, God will do all the rest. But there's a way, there's truth, and there's life. And we dare not lose our life. I believe... God is alive. What kind of home would you think that would be if somebody said that? Shamefully, nowadays, they don't want any children. They don't want to be troubled with them. They're the heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. The scripture says so. But what would it be like if the answer that Brother Wolf would have given us here was to have the richest quality of married life possible? What would it be like if in that home... They were intending to have the richest quality of home life and family life and altar around the altar. And they learn to sing and worship God and they work in harmony. Nobody ever gets upset. What a beautiful place that would be. Children always understood. Everybody's always cherished and so polite. And matter of fact, I heard a story about this family that, that said the Lord's Day is a holy day. And so on the Lord's Day, nothing negative can be spoken at our house. It all has to be encouraging and comforting and strengthening. No criticism at our house on on Sunday. Well, the children just loved it. The home just became a beautiful atmosphere. And the neighbor children started coming in and says, Oh, we just enjoy it so much at your house on Sunday afternoons. And so they they eliminated criticism. What I'm suggesting here... Is that if a couple set themselves to have the best life together and the highest quality, most polite, cultured children possible in the church or in the kingdom of God, what kind of home do you think that would be? Oh, that'd be heaven on earth, just a touch of heaven on earth. That is what I'd like to set our eyes on. Why are we here? What does the Lord intend for the church to be like? What kind of church do you want to be part of? Well, what kind of person you are makes up what kind of church you're going to be part of. And so I'd like to look at about five or six points this evening of why we are here. Number one, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. If you have a Bible, please find Ephesians two. I'd like you to fasten your eyes on these words. Ephesians two, verse twenty. Through 22, actually 21 and 22. The context here is where Jesus took 
and brought the two most opposite cultures together. The Jews and the Gentiles. And he brought them together into one body. As a matter of fact, this was the issue that the Apostle Paul got so much persecution for. If he would have just said, well, the salvation is to the Gentiles too and we'll let them have their own uh, place over here in their own synagogue. No, he insisted that this mystery was that they were all of one body. They made, took twain and made one new man. And now he says here that he has reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. We need to read verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Here we have one of the reasons that we are still here is that God wants to live on the earth. Did you know that? See, when mankind sinned and departed from the Lord... The Lord withdrew himself. Oh, he'd come and he'd walk with this one. He'd walk with that one. But he wants a place where there's a whole group of people where he can come and he dwells there among that group of people. You know, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 6, 7, says your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You're not your own. We have the Holy Ghost within us. Those that are born again, those that are walking with the Lord, those that are following the Lord Jesus, they have the Holy Ghost within them. Their body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. But you're one person. And the Lord wants a greater habitation than that. And His aim is that as people come together in harmony, in the unity of the Spirit, in the fear of God, and they dwell together and are built together, that God dwells there in that place in a much fuller way in a whole society of a congregation much more fully. God wants a place to dwell. Now, let's just look at a few words here. In verse 21, it says, In whom all the building fitly framed together. Fitly framed together. Builders, we got any builders here? Uh, What does that word mean, fitly framed together? You can't slip a credit card through the joint. Now, now, who are these members now? What's the building material? Ouch! You mean the Lord cut me off just where he wanted me cut off? That's what I see here. He limited, and as the brotherhood flows together and blends together, he fitly frames together... This isn't a haphazard throwing together. I see a picture of a brotherhood, a church, a body that's joined together where their gifts and abilities and, and a harmony. And uh, this brother, he, he doesn't get out of his place. Oh, right there. Now, <clears throat> Brother Mark, Hurst, and I are very different. But I need him so much. And there are times that I need to ask my fellow ministers. You know, I, I actually, I push them forward. I say, no, come on, you know, I, I don't want to always be doing this job. You, y'all are ordained as well as I am. Come on. You know, and, and so uh, anyway, <clears throat> maybe I'm doing the Lord's work there. But um, th- this whole thing of being 
fitly framed together rather than haphazardly put together. Haphazardly thrown together. And it says in all the buildings, in the Holy Ghost is doing that in the brotherhood. Is that our concept of brotherhood? Or am I my own person? And I'm, I, I know what I know. And you might know what you know, but you stay out of my way. And no, we wouldn't say that. But, but in this whole thing of a, a brotherhood that blends together, that unites together, that humbles themselves one for another, that's willing to be corrected one of another, here we have a place where God is going to build together a, a holy temple. Look at those words in verse 21 there at the end of the verse. A builded groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. The Lord has a very high opinion and concept of what the church ought to be like. And all of our hearts need to gravitate towards that revelation. How will we accomplish all of that? We see you're talking pretty fantastical stuff. I find fantastic things in the Bible, but I find that as I head my heart to it, head my heart towards it, things that were dreams become realities. I find these things. It says, In whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. <clears throat> this building, people come together, it increases in holiness as a temple for God. How come, friends, how come do we struggle with decay? How come the gravity is pulling down? There's a spiritual gravity as well as a physical gravity. And this is pulling down. You need to resist it. You need to blend towards God's revelation. If we're going to fulfill this habitation of God. God wants to dwell among a people. It's been that way since the very beginning. And he took one man. He took Abraham. And he called Abraham out. And he and had Abraham wandered around in, uh, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham wandered about there. And he promised him a son. And the people was small in its beginning. Small in coming. It didn't come very fast. But by and by, there was a host that came out of Egypt. 600,000 men, I believe. 600,000. Over a half a million. That doesn't count the women and the children. Probably some over a million people. Up to a million and a half. I don't know how many. Came out of Egypt. And God came down in a tabernacle. And dwelt there. The flame of fire showed his presence. The cloud covered them as they went. God was dwelling among a people. I think the first time. But they were stiff necked. They were hard. They wouldn't listen. They did their own thing. And repeatedly Moses fell on his face. And God said there's coming a day. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to take the old heart out. I'm going to put a new heart in. And they're going to be my people. And I'm going to be their God. One of the reasons that we have as much decay in the church of Jesus Christ in the U.S. is because we've gotten our eyes off of him who fills all things and who is all things and to whom all things belong. We've gotten our eyes off of him and pleasing him and pursuing him. And we want to, yeah, I got my ticket. Yeah, I've been saved. Yeah, I got my ticket. I'm not flying today or tomorrow, but I got my ticket. You know, look right here. I got my ticket. It's of little consequence. 
if that's how we view salvation and our walk with God. Is it worthwhile to be together, to build together, to agree together, to work together, to pray together, to preach together, to counsel together, and submit together? Is it worthwhile? It's worthwhile. It's a thrill of my life as I see brethren and sisters come together and increasingly come together and knit their hearts together. And somebody here has a bit of a sensitivity on an on a issue. And it comes up at brothers' meeting. We talk about the things. We were sitting in a brothers' meeting and uh, we're discussing the upcoming woodcutting. We're going to have a woodcutting. And uh, oftentimes in a woodcutting, when we have woodcutting, a bunch of people to get together. Some that don't need wood, whatever. We have a place where there's a lot of treetops and all and we'll make a lot of firewood. Well, oftentimes there's loads of firewood go to this place and that place, and and uh, girls and uh, children go and uh, stack in firewood and in a widow's house and uh, woodshed and stuff and and things. And so there's this group of people going, and it's just a few miles. And a brother says, um, "You know, I've been bothered about something." So what's that? Well, what are we teaching our children about seatbelt laws? And we just all bunch of pile in the back of a pickup or something, and go a few miles down the road and. Uh, and unload some firewood. Well, to me, it's no big deal. I, I understand good and well. I think children maybe understand. But you know what? The decision was made. It's no problem to send an extra van or something to haul those people over there. And everybody gets a seatbelt. Because one brother has a concern about an issue. As we draw together and are sensitive, what is it that's concerning you in your heart with what's happening in the congregation? What kind of spirit is coming in? As we work together like that, God is there. And I have seen some young people that it looked by all appearance that they were on their way out. But as they saw the brotherhood come together in unity and drawing their hearts together and a sensitivity rather than a bah, they said, and it was an issue that the young man disagreed with, the position we were taking. He disagreed with it. And shortly thereafter, I heard say, that young man said, I got more confidence in the brotherhood now than I've ever had. And I said, how did that happen? What has something to do with being a habitation of God together? As we knit together. Is it worthwhile? God wants to dwell among a people, and it's worthwhile. Are you contributing to this place where God dwells? Young man, young woman, old, uh, whoever here, is your body pure as the temple of God? Are you seeking to build the place of God's habitation or are you dividing it? Are you defiling it? God wants a church, a people. Why are we here? God will only dwell where there is holiness. Will he be pushed out here by what we bring in? Let's look over here, chapter 3 in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. There's some beautiful, beautiful verses. I've for uh, several, uh, for a couple of days uh, now, I've taken and read the book of Ephesians through in a meditative, just a quiet, meditative way and pondering what I'm reading. And I find it amazing how full of the church and the vision for the church that this, this, uh, chap, this book here is. Now, Ephesians 3, verse 10 says... 
Let's read verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What is the intent here? In verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers. What's that? Principalities and powers. The angelic host. Good angels, bad angels, they're the students. In heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. John D. Martin puts it this way, that the church is the object lesson. The angels are the students and God is the teacher. By what's going on in the church, God wants to teach the angels, if you will, the principalities and powers, how marvelously wise he is by what's going on in the church. Oh, you're wise. Out there in the world, maybe you don't know anything about it. Have you ever seen two people that really butt heads, had a fight? ever be reconciled it almost doesn't happen they are enemies for a brothers and sisters quarrel over an inheritance they're the only family they got but because of disagreements and things said they may never speak to each other again but in the church one person does another one wrong and the one that's wronged According to what Jesus teaches, the one that gets wronged, he forgives and loves anyway. He might admonish him, but if the matter is irreconcilable, there are cases where people overlook it and they forgive and they love and the angels. There are people that have misunderstandings. There are people that have been wounded in marriages, in Christian settings, who forgive and love and embrace and bypass the injury and are reconciled and win their erring mate. It happens in the church. It happens in the church that sinners come under the preaching of the word of God. And it happens that they get pricked in their hearts. And here's someone who has been defiled and living an ungodly life for years, can't get free, comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus and gets their sins washed away. And this unholy person who is full of all kinds of ungodliness, what's going on in their life? They just were crying with tears over the sins they committed and the people they've wronged. And now, what's he doing? Oh, he's going over there and straightening something out with somebody. But he's forever tied to... No, he's free. He's free. God shows his manifest, magnified, multi-sided wisdom by what happens in the church. I wonder... How many times it is then? I don't know what goes on 
Is God able to hang his head? I don't know how it all works. But are there... I was going to make a beautiful lesson out of that for these angels. The heavenly principalities and all that. (sighs) Failed me. He failed me. What I'm saying is when we find in the word of God something that pertains to us, that is a direction for us in our situation, and it looks totally hopeless to go ahead and obey that, go ahead and do that, but we do it anyway by faith. And it's amazing the things that God does then. God is extremely interested in the church. Are you able to knit yourself together with a brotherhood somewhere? Are you able to totally be one and pull towards the light and towards strengthening and towards godliness? Satan is extremely interested in the church. He seeks to divide it. He seeks to bring compromise. He seeks to bring a lack of power. He seeks to keep people from being converted. Why? Because when the church is going down, he laughs at God. The the church is the chief joy of the Lord. It's what the Lord Jesus died for. It's what the Lord Jesus is coming to receive, a pure bride. And he's coming. He wants a spotless one. Is your church in your life what you're responsible for? Is it increasing in holiness and unto godness? Or is Satan having his way? Yeah, yeah, what's the use? There's a brother told me he had no intention of getting converted. But he said, when I saw my older generation, our dads and mothers, when I saw them repenting and reconciling for their differences, I couldn't help myself. My heart broke all over the place. Which way are you taking it? God, the teacher, the principalities and powers are the students and the church is the object lesson. We could spend the rest of our time here speaking of the conditions where God dwells. Beautiful message preached by Paul Weaver. If you have a chance to listen to it, probably Byrne Christian Fellowship would have it. Uh, Is God still with us? And he preached four points about where God dwells. He dwells where he gets all the glory. He dwells where the angels were holy, holy, holy. He dwells where there's holiness. He dwells where there's unity. And I tried this afternoon to think of the fourth one that he brought out. It's the most beautiful message. But he asks the question, is God still with us? When they made some decisions and came to some conclusions and the brotherhood is working, is God still with us? Why are we here? Number two, to be the light of the world and salt of the earth. Turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 13. I can't believe what's happened to that clock. <laughs> it seems like I fall in one or two camps. I lack unction or I can't quit talking. Matthew 5 and verse 13. 
Why are we here? Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under foot of men. Who is the salt of the earth? It says ye. That would be the Christians. Verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. But on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Whose good works do they see here? They see your good works and who do they glorify? They glorify your Father which is in heaven. So here we have a reason, number two, that we are here. We are here to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Verse 13 here. Think of the purifying effect of salt. You know, you can put salt in a wound and it'll really sting. But if you salt down meat, uh, you uh, preserve meat. Salt is a preservative. And Jesus said here, ye are the salt of the world, salt of the earth. How does it say it? The salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. How good does food taste that has no salt? You and I, the Christians, are the ones that bring flavor to the earth for the Lord, if you will. And we're the ones that bring flavor to the earth, a preserving element among the society in which we live. You know, as long as the church stood strong on divorce and remarriage and gave no bending, there was still an accountability that uh, people knew it was wrong. But since that time, it hasn't been so strong. But salt... Um, is made to preserve. Think of the purifying effect of society where there is a pure, sinless society. A pure, sinless society. That's intended to be you and me. The church, there's a society, a group, a gathering together that's pure and sinless, that's devoted to the Lord. That's the Lord's intent. And the salt that it is to a society... I'll give you a little bit of a, a situation. Uh, men were faced with their sin. Um, there was a man there in our community, not too far from where we live, a neighbor of ours, whose parents both suddenly passed away. And uh, <clears throat> he was very busy and, and uh, being divorced. He um, didn't have a housekeeper. And so he got um, my daughters. I agreed to allow my daughters in that situation to go over there and clean his house. He was not there. But uh, they would go over and clean his house. And uh, so we had agreed and, and uh, he uh, gave him a key. And, and um, he said, well, there's only one other person I've ever given a key to my house. And I hadn't met him that long before. And so um, they were going to go over there and he called me and he said, hey, I just remembered. There's a few beers in the fridge. Um, uh, what, uh, what shall we do about that? And I said, well, I said, I don't think they'll be tempted with those beers there. No, no. He said, shall I send somebody else over there and get those uh, beers out of that fridge before they get there so that it's not offensive to your girls? And I said, no. I said, that'll be all right. I said, I appreciate you calling me. But that, there was an accountability within this man's heart that said, ah, I shouldn't have beer in my fridge. When I come in contact with somebody that's walking with God, I shouldn't have beer in my fridge. That's what God had in mind with a holy society, a sinless society, a a society that's walking with God. It has a sanctifying effect. God wants it. 
God wants a pure standard. Are you holding it up? Are you holding up a pure standard? Are you salt? Are we as a people salt? Sometimes in a situation, there are some that are salty and some that are not. Where are we at tonight? In verse 13, we have salt. In verse 14, we have light. As a people, it says, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a, uh, on a hill cannot be hid. What's a city? Is that one light or many lights? Many lights. God's intent was that the church would be holy, consecrated, walking with Him, a life of a light, and walking with Him, not in worldliness, not in sin, not in filthiness, <clears throat> foolish talking, uh, tobacco, uncleanness, He didn't want any of that. And it's going to be like a city that is set on a hill and everything else is is lower. And you can see its illumination for miles around. That was God's intent. But when we have an individualistic concept of the church and it's just me, you know, the Lord has saved me and praise God, I'm on my way to glory. Well, praise God if you are on your way to glory. But you know what? It's hard to go there by yourself. And it's hard to go there when the society in the pool is pulling you down. The church is to be a city set on a hill. Verse 15 says, Neither do men light a candle and put it on a, under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So here we have a light. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What is the light? What is the fuel that makes the light shine? In that verse, verse 16, good works. Good works. Now I hope I'm not scaring you too much with that. It's setting forth the light, preaching the gospel. Pushing the light forward. But it distinctly says here, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If a light will shine, it must have fuel. The fuel must be the good works. What are good works? This word good is number 2570. It is good as beautiful, literally or morally. I.e., it's valuable or virtuous for appearance or use. There's another word that's used in Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. That word is um, number 18. It's benefit in any sense, often as a noun, benefit good things. I'll make application. I'll try to bring it back together here. The word works is number 2041. It's toil as an effort or occupation by implication an act, doing, labor, or work. So between these two verses, one in Matthew and one in Ephesians, these two teachings come forth when it talks about beholding your good works. They see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. One, we are called to good works as in occupations. That may seem, well, uh, yeah, we knew that. But we are called to maintain occupations that are good works, that are productive, that are um, good business ethic. We should have the best business practices around, the most faithful workers from our churches. That should be the call here. Um, 
um, the company we work for in building um, uh, storage buildings, they have the logo Mennonite, Mennonite Workmanship. Well, that wasn't my idea. We work for them. But they know something that is the image of what Mennonite's craftsmanship is to be like and its quality to a conscientious degree. That's what they're capitalizing on. And they're making money on it. I suppose if we're building the buildings, we're making some money on it too. But we should be known not for sloppy workmanship or unfaithfulness or you can't never count on them. They'll tell you they'll be there at 10 o'clock, but why? They may never show up. They'll not even call you either. That shouldn't be. Here there should be such quality of life and godliness, of good work ethic and conscientiousness that men glorify God. says, well, I'd rather pay a little more to get so-and-so done because I know when they get done, I'll be happy with it. And if there's anything wrong with it, they'll be back to fix it. It won't cost me anything. But the other uh, definition here of good works is doing relief or benefit work for others. Relief or benefit work for others. I believe that we as a people are too selfish. We're unwilling to give of our time and our energies for somebody else's need. Should have had insurance. Or should have had this or should have had that. What are you doing that's a service to struggling humanity that brings glory to God? Well, I'd like to suggest that Christian Aid Ministries has quite a few programs and um, different things that can be done there. But here's a teaching. This is not a good works that's seeking to merit my home in heaven. This is a good works that seeks to glorify my Father which is in heaven. Number three, why are we here? To wait for the Lord from heaven. To wait for the Lord from heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You say, well, that's, what's, what's the point? He'll come whether we're waiting or not. He will come. But this was one of the believers' practice in the book of Thessalonians is that they settled themselves in to wait for the Lord from heaven. And Brother Sam Hostetler, in a message, I don't remember how long ago it was, but he indicated that for 1,500 years... There was a faithful church there in Thessalonica. For 1,500 years, there was still a faithful church there. That's not something you can say for some of the others. I wonder if they're waiting for the Lord from heaven had anything to do do with it. 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 8. Now, he's talking here um, of their godly example. Oh, we should back up. And read here, for our gospel, verse 5, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that we were in samples, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul said you were an example to everybody in that area. Here was a church that was indeed a city set on a hill that was an example. People took it notice, took notice of it. 
Verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. That word there, sounded out, means literally to echo out. It reverberated. Sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. Paul said, I just quit preaching. I didn't need to say anything anymore. Because you as a church were such a tremendous example and you were not only living that way, but you were speaking it forth in word and in action. And then he says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus teaches us various places in the scriptures to watch and to wait and expect for his coming. We don't know when he's coming. You say, well, preacher. Uh, it's been a long time that people have been waiting. It's, uh, i tell you one thing for sure, in relation to that, we're closer than we were. We need to watch. We don't need to give up. We don't need to join with those that say, When's the, where's the promise of his coming? Since the father's, you know, grandpa was watching for his coming too, and he's been gone quite a few years. But this church here settled to wait for his son from heaven. They were content to live life with their eyes, will it be today? When the Lord returns, talking to their neighbors, talking to people they come in contact with, have you prepared for his coming? He's coming, and you don't know when. You don't know when. When it was all said and done, they settled in to wait for Jesus to come. God has placed the church in every generation to wait for Jesus to come, and to thus be his city set on a hill. Are you waiting, prepared, useful? Is your lamp full of oil? Are you waiting expectantly? When's the last time you thought about the Lord's return? We can get caught up in this life. Everything's going on. Yeah, we're going to die by and by. And right now there's so many things to do. And, and people tell me I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't know when I would read that much of the Bible. And I ask them, have you read the New Testament? I'm talking about people that... Wouldn't profess to be heathen. Um, no, I just, I'm just not a reader. I'm just not a reader. Well, there's one thing that we need to read, friends. We need the scriptures. And we need to wait for the Lord to come from heaven. Why are we here? To be our brother's keeper and to care for our own. A much neglected thing. It's really uh, very sad to go into nursing homes, and I'm glad that we have nursing homes. I'm glad that people aren't just left to lay on the street and to suffer. A brother uh, said that um, he was in a third world country, and he had taken some mattresses down there for, um, for the poor people. And he found this invalid whose mattress had huge holes in it. And the person had body sores, bed sores from that poor bed. And he said, well, he said, I certainly I'm glad that the USA doesn't allow the people to suffer like that. But we're here to care for our own. First John chapter 3. I'd like to show this to us yet here. First John chapter 3. It says in verse 10. 
In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. Do you love the brethren? Is there a love for your brothers and sisters, in your congregation, in your heart? Why did he hate him? He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? It's like it's an incredulous question. Whoso hath this world's good, and see his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My mind goes to the good Samaritan there, and the priest and the Levite that walked on past. Here is a fellow human, but this seems to be closer. This is among the family of God. Verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The person who does not relate right to his brother or his brotherhood denies that he knows God. Verse 10, in this the children of God are manifest or clearly seen and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is of not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. <clears throat> does this passage give any more details as to what this brotherhood love is? Verse 12 says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. What did Cain do? Well, it was what he did, and it's what he didn't do. Cain slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. <clears throat> it says, not as Cain. In the Genesis account, things had just gone very bad with Abel. Abel had just lost his life. And the Lord came to Cain and said, Where is Abel thy brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, in fact, yes. That's the implied answer. Yes, he was responsible for his brother. Not only had he killed him, but he should have been protecting him and taking care of him. How easy is it in our day, in our churches, in our situations, when some brother or sister has trouble and has problems at their house of some sort. Do we feel responsible? Is there any level of responsibility that you as an individual feel? Are we as a brotherhood responsible for each other? I believe we are. Cain was called into account for how he had treated Abel. I just asked the question here. If our brother falls, are we responsible in that? If a brother or sister falls into sin, is there any responsibility on the congregation's part for that? I believe yes. There's the seeking to restore. 
And ultimately, if there's not repentance, there needs to be a putting out of the church. Matthew 18 teaches us some about that. The Lord intends for the church to work together, to knit together, to be accountable one to another, to be accountable as a unit. I was talking with a brother, and you might think this is pretty far-fetched. We're talking about the whole subject of teaching school. And this particular congregation, small congregation, all of five families. Starting up another state. I was talking to this brother, and he said, well, he says we have some financial accountability around here. He said, at least once a year, he said, I'm not sure that's enough. But he said, at least once a year, he says, we all get together. And we all give account for where we are financially. We were talking about school teaching. My question to him was, he told me that he's considering doing something he never heard before. He's considering ordaining a brother to the ministry of school teaching. And I said, uh, how is uh, he going to fare financially? And he said, well, he said, if, he, you know, if our efforts aren't reaching around in our accountability and what we're helping him with, with financially as he serves in this bracket, he said, as we have financial accountability, it'll become evident that it's not reaching around. We'll need to do something more. And I just, he didn't feel threatened at all. The whole brotherhood didn't feel threatened at all. They believe it's necessary because where they come from, they saw large business increase and increase and people's hearts go after their money and decay and trouble came into the local congregation. And they said, we're, we're willing to be open and transparent with each other in all areas of life. Do you think that'll be painful sometimes? Do you think... It always feels good when you need to go to the dentist. Do you still go to the dentist? Is it necessary to go to the dentist? Now, I'm, not project- I'm, not, I'm just saying here. Here's a brotherhood that I'm given an idea here that they, they believe that they are to care for each other. And they're in this together. Maybe it can be overdone. I believe it can be overdone. But I think it can be underdone. I'd just like to submit some ideals to you here. If our brother has financial problems, do we have any responsibility in that? The easiest thing is to mind our own business. But it is, is it the godly thing? In verse 17, that was, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? I'd like to promote stronger brotherhoods. A prayer of mine that I began to pray recently is to ask the Lord what he wants me to do to help strengthen churches internally and strengthen churches in working together in a broader scale in a harmonious way. And I don't know what all that is, but I believe tonight he'd like us to set our sights a little higher. Verse 16, it says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What's the most precious thing you have? 
your life. The Lord calls us here to a willingness to lay down our absolute life. Because Jesus is the new example. But we have little petty things. We have little petty things that nobody's willing to change. Nobody's willing to humble themselves and give up a little something compared to a life. People are not willing to lay down rights or anything for the brethren. Could we conclude that that means there's no love? You know, self is a hard life to lay down. Preferences. People get dogmatic and they call it truth. I was sitting in a, just a small lad. I was in a place where these two men... One was my great uncle. Another one was a minister from a local place there. And they were sitting across the room from each other one evening. And um, they had it going. Both had very strong voices, very strong opinions. And they were sitting, oh, I don't know, a pretty good distance. There's at least as much distance between their seats as uh, this bench length here, up top here. And um, they got going, and they got talking, and they were across the space, the open space, to where their hands were almost touching. Ah, watch this, watch this. And they had it going. Both acknowledged that they got in the flesh. Certainly, we're not treating each other like brothers. Brethren. If Christ dwells within that one, what I do to him, I do to Jesus. So if we had the time, we'd turn over to 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 through 8, where it talks about um, a man's responsibility to his own household first and foremost, that if he hasn't, doesn't take care of his own, he's denied the faith. There is a responsibility for us to care for our own. And there are some that don't do it. It says, if any man care not for his own, he's denied the faith, he's worse than an infidel. Well, point number five was, we're here to increase the kingdom by preaching and missions. Have a couple of references there. One would be Acts 1 1. I think I'll read that. We're real close here to Acts. No, I'm going the wrong way. In the wrong John here. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. See the church at Thessalonia. They not only heard words, but they saw what kind of men Paul and Barnabas were among them. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. But Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. We are called to advance the kingdom of God in word and in deed. Just today, there's a group that went up into um, 
about two hours from home to, to help some, um, I'm not sure what the damage was. Was it flooding? I'm not sure. Was it wind? Maybe it was tornado, but it was a rapid response team, and there was some 12, um, I think the van load was 12 people that headed up there to help unfortunate people. And it's amazing when you get in those situations, how many of those unfortunate people that have had flood damage, have had uh, tornado damage, they say, you're a godsend. Oh, you don't know how much it encourages me that you came to help us. This is how Jesus lived. Jesus cared about others. And of course, there's Matthew 28, 18 through 20 we could turn to, but I think we need to go on to point number six. Why are we here? To serve God acceptably. And you could turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Let's begin reading in verse 25. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, speaking of the Son of God. Verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Do you dream much about eternity? Being a young man, do you think much of eternity? I knew a 23-year-old young man, full of zeal and love for the Lord, Go on his back porch. He's married, had a wife and two little girls. He go back on his back porch, look up those bright stars, and he say, "Father, come get me, take me home. I'm tired of living in this old world." And his wife said, well, "Aren't you happily married? You know, oh yes, I'm so happily married. I just, you know, he loved his wife. They were very tender. But I'm tired of living in this world. I just want to go home and be with the father." One Sunday, right after service, he gave a testimony similar to that. The pastor just preached from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, that's one of my favorite scriptures. It wasn't verse 17. It's the beginning of the chapter where it talks about this tabernacle going down. And we have a building in the heavens, not made with hands. And so, he talked about camping in a front yard or a backyard. And a windstorm coming up, you know, in the summertime, children out there camping, and the wind knocks the tent down. It says if the wind knocks your tent down, you can run to the house, and Dad will let you in. Dad will be there at the door. He heard the storm. He'll be at the door and let you in. And he used that analogy <clears throat> to us dying and going to be with the Lord. At the end of that meeting, that young man stood, and he says, I'm tired of living in this old tent. He said, I want to go in the house and be with the Father. He said, when the wind knocks my tent down, I'm going in the house to be with the Father. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, a little eccentric, a little radical. Yeah, sounds nice. Yeah, I'm sure you're serious about that. A week and a day later, the wind knocked his tent down. 
And he went in the house to be with the father. He was up on a metal building. They were putting on roof metal. Things had been pretty calm. It was about the 4th or 5th of March. Things had been pretty calm. But about noon, the wind started picking up in gusts. And he was up there. Didn't have a safety harness on. I don't know why. Had insulation across that building. They were screwing on metal. And the wind caught a sheet of iron, a sheet of roofing metal, and smacked it into his back. Threw him off balance, and he took a step forward, went through the insulation upside down to the concrete, 18 feet down. He had a love for the Lord, and he left a mark behind. What kind of mark are you leaving behind? Are you serving the Lord acceptably with reverence and godly fear? He was looking for a kingdom that couldn't be shaken. Here we have verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We're here to serve God acceptably. In closing here, all the scriptures indicated that there is a specific revelation of God I was suggesting to you some of the content of that. Suggesting to you also that a new heart and a new creature is part of the content of that. There is a way. There is a body of doctrine. And we must line up with that body of doctrine. Or else judgment will fall on us. God is nothing to be trifled with. He's a consuming fire. Remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? They offered a strange fire. They were supposed to take coals off of the altar, off of the altar, put it in this censer, and put incense on top. They just took any fire. They just got coals. I don't know where they got it. And they offered strange fire. The Lord burned them up in their... I don't know. I couldn't quite discern today as I was reading that account whether their cousins carried them out in their own coats or whether the, 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 the Nadab and Baihu's coats or whether they used their coats to carry them out because he burned them very seriously, killed them. God's a consuming fire. He won't be anything to be trifled with. There's coming a day in which we need to have served him acceptably. God is wanting a place of habitation. Will we be a people of his habitation? It's not just about me. Are you dispelling the darkness in your world by your godly life? Are we as a people steadfastly waiting for the Lord's return? When's the last time you thought about the Lord's return? When's the last time you heard a message on the subject? Are you looking forward eagerly to his return? Are you concerned that if this is not a common mindset that we're looking forward to his return? Are you concerned about that? Well, tonight, does your heart resonate with our responsibilities to our own and the brethren? Recognize that different brotherhoods have different responses to some of these subjects. So it works. It needs to work. Are you being a contributing, as, a, as young people here tonight, are you being a contributing factor to the wholeness of that brotherhood, or are you dividing it? Where are we at? 
Remember Brother Abner Showalter saying over there, <clears throat> so we were just a few of us, just a little brotherhood. And he says, we went to uh, the brothers' meetings and various meetings, and he said, we're just ready to give it all we got because it's sink or swim. So we're just barely going to make it here. And we're just going to pour in everything. It didn't matter or what, what we had to give up or what, we, or what needed to happen. We just needed, we needed a church. We needed a brotherhood. We are to lay down our lives. And if we don't lay down our lives for our brethren in little things, will you for big things? Probably not. So why are we here? Why are you here? You know, the Lord has given you amazing capacity to set in your youth a direction for your life. Even at a time when it hardly seems like you're qualified to be able to do it. Yet the Lord has given the possibility of setting in your youth, fastening some things down. This is how I desire to seek and serve the Lord. I intend to go through with him. I intend to follow him. Cost me what it may. I want to be faithful to him. I want to love him and his people. I want to be a servant in humility to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the privilege of beginning to set your heart in that direction here tonight. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn our hearts to you, Lord, who is sufficient for such things, you speak of such marvelous, amazing things as a church, the habitation of God, increasing in holiness. Lord, our flesh is against us. The world is telling us to live for success here and now. And the devil lays many a snare and many a care upon us. Lord, I call upon you for help for these young people, these precious young people. Pour out your spirit upon them, Lord. Lord, if I've spoken of things tonight that are unpalatable, Lord, where they're the truth, I pray that we just simply would take and chew them. Lord, Anything that I didn't speak in truth tonight, Lord, let it fall to the ground. But let every word of God be established. And the principles, Father, would you fasten them in all our hearts. Be glorified. Give us a good night's rest. We pray, Father, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll turn it back to you, Brother Larry.